0: take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 together. I just want to start this morning by saying thank you to each and every one of you for getting up to come to church on a Sunday. Um, Each and every week you have a choice to make. And I just want to let you know that I really struggle. It's the best day of the week for me. Um, I can't live without it, without your company and the encouragement of God's people. But I gotta let you know, like right, when you get up at 5.30, 6, right? It's dark for now, right? Um, when the sun comes up, everything looks gray. <laughs> uh, there's fog, there's uh, fog trees, everything looks gray, it's, it's, it's Lake County, Ohio, uh, it's gray, um, it's awfully encouraging to wake up most days with gray, um, like anything, anything you want to do for that day or have planned for that day, when you wake up in a gray atmosphere, it's like taking Ambien before you watch the Weather Channel, right, <laughs> it's, it's like you got to be kidding me. Uh, I know it's hard, and uh, I just wanted to thank you uh, because you have decided to allow God's grace to operate in your lives. And you know the value, uh, the spiritual value of being together uh, as a church family. And uh, I thank you for that. Um, I had no plans on saying that until about five minutes ago before Luke sang. and. Uh, but I said it, so thank you. Um, have you ever seen a weather vane? You know what a weather vane is? Roosters placed upon the top of the weather vane, and uh, depending on which way the wind blows, right, uh, you can sometimes passively detect weather patterns, and uh, do you know why the weather vane was? Uh, created, the original uh, creator of the first weather vane, uh, by their testimony, it was created so that mankind would know every time they saw one that their nature was fickle, that mankind in their nature really doesn't know uh, from one day to the next which direction to head. They're blown around like the wind. One day one way, one day the next day. By nature, we're directionless, and by nature, we're fickle. So the next time, or every time, you see a weather vane from now on, it's to be an indictment upon our character. A reminder of our character. And really, that's what we've been studying in the book of Romans. It's a reminder of our character before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And as your Sunday morning program says in summary of this morning's message, this is really a final argument that the Apostle Paul brings against mankind in general, but Remember, he's not bringing it against the Roman church because they're already in Jesus Christ. He's bringing this final argument to them by way of reminder. He's remediating this material to them for their own protection in light of what they would face in the future. Every believer faces the temptation to compromise Bible doctrine at some point in time in their life and in particular compromise the doctrine of the gospel. Every one of us has faced that or will. Every one of us is gonna face some degree of affliction that's going to tempt us in our fallenness to maybe look away or, or turn away from that which we know to be true in Jesus Christ because that's just the nature of tough times even for a believer. So remember why Paul's writing Romans to this church. It's for our help, it's our encouragement, it's for our learning. And he starts off the first three chapters, through chapter three and verse 20 at least, with a reminder that man is fickle, man is directionless, man is at best broken, and man in reality is dead in their trespasses and sins, always seeking to do that which is right in their own eyes while never looking to the Lord with a genuine glance or even a stare to find out where true eternal help comes from. What have we learned so far? Let me summarize what we've learned so far from chapter one through chapter three and verse eight. God, in his mercy, has attempted to reach the heathen through his power demonstrated in creation. The moralist, he has, the do gooder, he has sought to reach through the use of their own conscience the law of God written on their hearts. And to the religious person that Pastor Hobie spoke about last week, he sought to reach them in his mercy through the use of the scriptures the Bible itself. But because of our nature, because of our fallenness before we meet Jesus Christ, man does not have the ability of himself to engender himself to a personal relationship with God through the mere observance of creation, through understanding of right and wrong in their own conscience that the Lord's given them. Or even through our understanding of Scripture without the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've understood. This is a difficult reminder for all of us, but remember, this difficult reminder should give way to much thanksgiving and praise in our own hearts. Because remember, we're reviewing what we once were. Amen? We are no longer in this state. So while the information that we're mining our way through here may be difficult for us to remember, uh, let's make sure that we're rejoicing while we recall and we study again what we once were and rejoice now and only boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for where we presently are in our own lives, there have been three general understandings of man's nature throughout human history. And these general understandings have taken on many different uh, forms, explanations, definitions by hundreds of individuals. Philosophers, scientists, people of religious orientation. But I'm going to summarize these three different understandings of the nature of man very simply. First of all, mankind has understood itself to be generally good. Generally good. Liberal theologians even would say man is innately good. Mankind is generally okay. He's born with this inner light of goodness and should be left, to unlo- left alone to embrace their own natural light and decision-making processes. The second general way in which man defines our kind is that man is sick, man is sick, not sick in the sense of gross sickness, but he's just spiritually ill, and no man in the world would claim perfection, no man would stand in their right mind, even outside of Jesus Christ, unless there's some type of deranged cult leader and stand up and say, I Have never sinned. I've never done wrong in my life. But I'm just sick. But what does it imply when man is just merely sick? That they can heal themselves. I don't think I've ever seen in my life growing up in this gray matter (laughs) in the wintertime of Northeast. I've never seen so many bronchial illnesses, walking pneumonia and pneumonia. Uh, in my life, uh, many of you are still coming out of the, the uh, that that affliction. What do you do? Well, we go see a doctor. We'll get an antibiotic, and and as the weather warms up, we'll feel better. We're just sick. We're we're in a temporary state of affliction, and that's the way man spiritually, historically has defined themselves as a people. We're generally okay. We're good or we're just sick, and we can, by way of good works, outnumber our works of evil and then be okay. If there is a divine reality out there, if there is a judge of all the world out there, surely this judge will see me as sick, but this judge will be okay with me because I'll end up doing more good than bad in my life, and I'll tip that scale, that moral scale, and I'm sure he'll give me the thumbs up when it comes to the afterlife, man's just sick. There's a third understanding that mankind has generally rejected. The first two, mankind outside of the Lord Jesus Christ can accept very easily. The third is the explication of the nature of mankind that those outside of Jesus Christ cannot accept. It's not that they won't. It's not that they won't. They can't without the help of God. And that is simply this. Man is not generally good. Man is not just sick. Man is dead. Man is dead. And you go back, clear back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, where Our creator told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of this tree, right? Because if you do, you will surely die. So in Adam's sin, all men, Romans 5, we'll see in a few weeks, in Adam's sin, all men die. Now we know that when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, that they did not immediately physically die. So what does it mean? You will surely die. There is a spiritual death that is a permanent death, uh, irreversible by mankind, that every man incurs because they're sinners. We are spiritually dead. For any one of us that has recently attended a funeral, and I know that's been quite a few here recently, all of us would just say it's absolutely kid foolery to be able to say we can go up to the mere shell of an individual at a funeral and give that individual a command to rise and to get us a cup of water and expect that shell to move, right? Right? Because that shell is physically dead. It's incapable of life. The third understanding of man's nature in general that's always rejected by men without Jesus Christ is that they are spiritually dead completely incapable of hearing, let alone acting upon anything that's only understood in the word of God by way of salvation, okay? As a member of God's family here at Grace, I would assume where you would understand regarding man's condition. As a guest, I certainly would understand if this third historic understanding of man's condition is not something that you would embrace or understand. But the way we're going to uh, approach this final section describing the character of man Uh, should again be a comfort to those who have been brought out of this death unto life in Jesus Christ, but could be a very sober, haunting, uh, offensive, apparently unkind, apparently hateful, Description of human nature to some who have not experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ. These are, these are God's final arguments at his eternal, in His eternal courtroom. We've seen that the heathen in general have rejected God's witness in creation. The moralist has rejected God's witness in his conscience. The religious person has rejected God's witness in his own word. And now when we get to chapter three, verses nine to 20, the Apostle Paul sums up all three groups in a few final verses. So if there are any questions left unanswered, certainly they will be answered in these verses regarding the real nature of man, okay? So these verses will divide up in three simple ways. In verse nine, here's the final charge. A final charge against mankind in general. In verses 10 to 18, we'll see a divine indictment And this indictment is an indictment that has 14 counts of guilt. 14 counts of guilt in this divine indictment. And finally, we'll see this morning the divine verdict in verses 19 and 20. The divine charge in verse 9, a divine indictment in verses 10 to 18. And then the verdict, the divine verdict verdict in verses 19 and 20. Again, I think Alva J. McLean has done a tremendous job in practically breaking this down uh, for the most uh, simple of understanding for us. Let's look at these verses together. And by the way, in the margin of your Bible, it might be good for you to write down these three texts. Because by the time we get to the indictment, the 14 count indictment, the only thing the Apostle Paul is doing is repeating three Old Testament texts. And these Old Testament texts are Psalm 14 1 3, Psalm 53 one to three, and Ecclesiastes chapter seven and verse 20. He's just repeating Psalm 14, one to three, Psalm 53, one to three, and Ecclesiastes seven and verse 20. Let's read these verses together, then we'll go back and we'll study these verses under those three sections we've already described, the divine charge, indictment, and verdict. Let's look at verse 9. What then? He begins with an interrogative. He begins with a question, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. In other words, what is the conclusion of all that we've examined from chapter 1 to chapter 3 and verse 8 about these three groups of people, the heathen, the moralist, and the religious person? He says here, are we better than they? Interesting here. He says, are we the Roman Christians? Are we any different than they are in our nature? Without Jesus Christ, are we any different in our nature than they? And what does he say? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are what? All under sin. Now what we're gonna see here for the remainder of this passage is that those three groups of people are brought under the umbrella of both the religious and the irreligious. Can I just say that? The Jews here represent all religious people without Jesus Christ. And the Greeks represent all irreligious people, both the moralist and the heathen. Just to keep it simple for us. They're all under sin, as it is written. Are you ready for the 14 indictments? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, here's the verdict. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the charge is found in verse nine. Again, a simple question, what then? draws our attention to Paul's closing arguments as he wraps up the Lord's case regarding all of mankind in relationship to his divine indictment to come. In other words, after all the evidence that has been presented against the defendant, here are some concluding statements. Are we better than they? A second question. Not at all. Each of you here is either a Jew or Gentile. You're either formerly an irreligious heathen or you are formally an uh, unsaved religious person. All of us fall under either one of those two categories outside of Jesus Christ. In our fallen nature, we are no better than they. And again, folks, a reminder that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our savior and we get a divine nature, what nature never departs from us? Don't ever forget. This is a great reminder of the Apostle Paul to these Roman believers, the faithful, that though we're about to give this 14-count indictment, this is what you were again without Jesus Christ in your fallen state. And that nature is still there. So be careful. Let's rejoice. Let's be humbly, humbly thankful. Right? But we're no better than they. No better than they are. There's only one that is good, Amen. and that's Jesus Christ, who is in us, the hope of glory. There's nothing good about us still. Okay, all right. Then the charge is simple, it's brief, it's concise, and it concludes: for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All under sin. Uh, This preposition under before the word sin is a powerful preposition. All that simply means, like we used to be, all heathen or religious people outside of Jesus Christ are under the guilt of sin, the power of sin, the condemnation of sin, and the eternal doom of the same. just like we used to be without Jesus Christ. That is the reality of those who are under sin. It's as if he's saying, believer, never lose sight of what you once were before you met Christ. And Christian, don't lose any ground here in understanding the condition of mankind in general and your responsibility to them in presenting Jesus Christ just as someone in their kindness of their heart shared him with you at one point in your life? How many of you remember right now the time and the person that shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you? Would you raise your hand? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You heard it from somebody at one point. Paul's saying, you remember what you once were. Remember who you are now in Jesus. And remember, the heathen and the religious without Jesus need a mouthpiece for the gospel just like you had. And that's you and me. That's you and me. So this is the charge. They're generally under the influence, if you will. The indictment, verses 10 to 18. The indictment I would like to divide into three separate sections. These 14 counts I would like to divide into three separate sections. First of all, man is sinful in his nature. Man is sinful in his nature. We see that in verses 10 to 12. He's sinful in his nature. Number two, Man is sinful in his communication. His nature in his communication in verses 13 and 14. The way he uses his lips. His nature, his communication. And finally, verses 15 to 18, his actions. By nature he's sinful and that is demonstrated in his words and in his actions. That's where we'll find these 14 counts in this indictment. Man is sinful in his nature. What did verse 10 teach us? As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. This is man's sinfulness in his own nature. There is none righteous, not even one. Righteousness here is the standard of perfection, not man's ability because they're created in God's image to do good things from time to time. This is very, very needful for us to understand here. When it says, there is none righteous, what the apostle Paul's saying, there is no one in the world who's perfect. Okay? And as we know, there's only one who was perfect that ever lived, and that was our savior. I read a story not long ago of a Christian school teacher. Now this had to be years ago because the story included the use of a chalkboard. <laughs> I think some of our kids don't even know what chalkboards are uh, these days. But this particular uh, lady, the teacher of this class, um, drew across the top of the chalkboard and she left it there every year for her incoming class to to observe. She wrote a statement across the complete top of the chalkboard, Jesus Christ is perfect. And down the left side of the chalkboard, she wrote, man is sinful. And then she would draw a line off that vertical evaluation line and she would write percentages. 10%, 40%, 60%, 80%, 90%. And those would be percentages of goodnesses. And she would put names of individuals in history, or in current society that most people would uh, uh, conclude were only 10% good. You know, these would have been kids that maybe grew up okay and kind of nice when they were zero to five. But by the time they became six, you know, and by the time they were, you know, these were the people that turned out to be, you know, your serial killers. Right? So whether it be Lundgren's from just south of here or Jeffrey Dahmer, she would put their name at the 10%. And she would go up all the way to that 90% and and put there uh, men like uh, Socrates, uh, philosophers, physicians, um, Nobel Peace Prize winners and people that you know what these these are generally really good people, right? but they're still only ninety percent perfect. What if we got the ninety-nine and a half percent perfect in God's eyes, it's still not the perfection of Jesus Christ across the top of the chalkboard. All are under sin. There is none, not even one, that's perfect. It says here, as the indictment of our nature continues, there's none who understands. Verse 11, Paul is not describing what man knows about the material universe here. For man knows much about the world he lives in. I love visiting science centers in various cities. I love visiting natural history museums. I love when I go to Florida visiting NASA. I love finding out what man has found out about the material universe. Because to me that's just man even in their unsaved state obeying what God told him to do millennia of time ago. Subdue the earth and have what? Have dominion over it. Go as far as you would like with space travel and keep looking. You're never gonna reach the end of it, but have a great time (laughs) in your efforts, right? He's not speaking that man cannot have understanding about the material universe. What he's describing here is their inability to comprehend spiritual knowledge. Man is left in their nature radically deficient in what they know about God. The indictment continues against our nature. There's none who seeks for God. We know that man can seek for God when God draws him. And I believe, folks, that there's millions upon millions out there still that God is drawing or being prompted to seek after God. And I want you to know I pray every day that the Lord would lead me to those souls and lead them to me so that I can have the opportunity to share Christ with them as someone did with me at one point. But in man's state and left alone, he's not longing for God. But can I just share something with you to encourage you and and maybe, I don't know, passively convict you? If you run into somebody out there that is not yet in Jesus Christ and is talking a lot about God and a a lot about Jesus Christ and man, I have a lot of questions and They may even be making some false statements about divinity. Could you just assume for a moment that possibly God's answering your prayer of reaching a lost person and that possibly that person that you hear saying some really silly things might actually already be drawn of God to be born again? And why don't you get excited about their silly questions and observations and why don't we spiritually and graciously take advantage of that? Instead of saying, oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, that's not true. What in the world are you talking about? You've never been to church before, I can tell. Whatever the silly statement we might make, why don't we get excited that, you know what? God, the Spirit's still drawing people. People. Let me tell you a story, and I think the person that's told me this story is actually watching on live stream, it's not in my notes, it just came to mind. Years ago I was visiting a home of a very sweet couple whose husband had been in a tragic accident. And um, I won't go into all the details because the details really aren't uh, necessary. This person uh, whose husband was in the hospital was at home in agony, you know, preparing to mourn the loss of her spouse. And she walked outside and she said, God, give me a sign that you even exist. Give me a sign that you even love me or that you're even aware of this situation. And they said it was a perfectly clear day, which was super abnormal in Mentor, right? It was a sunny day, and all of a sudden, it began to rain right around her. Now, most of us that would hear that would say, you didn't sleep much last night, did you? Right? I know you've had a hard time. Come here, and let's talk about how dumb that really is. Now, think about this, and I don't want to get distracted here because I have a time limit with each one of my points, and I was not in my notes to give. So think about this. Right? Second Corinthians 4 says that Satan is the God of this world, and he'll do anything that he possibly can to distract our eyes away from the light of Christ. Now think about this. Could God who created fallen Satan actually allowed Satan to bring that little Johnny rain cloud to give her a sign to distract her away from Jesus? Because she could have said once that sign was given that God is with me and God is in me when he wasn't just because it was raining over her on a very sunny day? Couldn't she have said that? Wouldn't that be just like Satan to distract her away from salvation in Jesus Christ? Certainly it could be. Couldn't God have allowed Satan to do that? Absolutely. Don't you think for a second that God didn't know in all of that mix of things that she was gonna have a rendezvous with the believer that would say, you know what? It doesn't matter really what happened on that day. God does a lot of things to draw our attention to himself. Amen. And let me tell you, you could be on your way to salvation in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you about him? See? I love telling that story. And if you are watching today, and I messed up any of the details, it wasn't in my notes, call me tomorrow. And... Uh, <laughs> I'll fix it for the next time I give it. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. But God does draw. So many creative ways. All have turned aside, verse 12. The word turned aside here is used of a ship setting course for a long voyage but the captain of the ship mistakenly sets the direction of the ship just two degrees off and after the long voyage ends up in a completely opposite destination that they had planned for. All mankind is off course. They may not be multiple degrees off course, but they're all at least minimally off course and are headed to destruction. It says here they've together become useless. This is a a Greek use of a Hebrew word in origin. How many of you have ever gone to your refrigerator to grab a gallon of milk to pour over some cereal and you picked up that milk and you saw on the side the, the expiration date or purchase by this date? and let's say that the purchase by date was about 10 days ago. And you pulled it out, and you really had to have those Froot Loops, and you were really, really hoping that that milk would be okay to pour over those Froot Loops, and you opened it up, and you kind of put your nose over it very, very, right? It's like, woo! It's not that the milk, when it was fresh, wasn't good. It's just that within the nature of the milk, is the natural processes of becoming sour. And you can't stop it. You can't stop it. That's what it means here. They've become altogether useless. None of you in your right mind is going to take that curdled, spoiled, smelly milk and pour it over your Froot Loops and enjoy it. The only way we would ever do that is that was all we had and we hadn't eaten for 10 days and somehow we would suffer it just to stay alive. But it's rendered useless. That's the idea here. It says here, there's none who does good, not even one. And considering the context, we know man can do some moral good because they're made in the image of God. But this statement, according to the grammar, just simply means this. When a man looks back over the shoulder, his own shoulder into his own history, no matter how long that he or she has lived, someone outside of Jesus Christ cannot and will not find altogether Christ-like eternal motivation in the way they lived. It doesn't mean that they can't do periodic good, but the summation of the whole of their life is without Christ and without eternal good. Man and his communication is sinful. Verses 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. Wow, we can only imagine the negative influence of all graveyards around us if none of them would have ever been closed. You've all seen or read the stories of what happens in communities where Uh, 100 year or 1,000 year floods happen where caskets are unearthed and you can see them floating down without their lids down newly made rivers. And the biggest fear is what? Community wide, region wide infection and sickness because death has been literally poured out by way of that flood from that newly opened grave. But it's interesting here. It says here man's words have this influence on society. Their throats are open contamination. They're unclosed graves. Influencing not just them, but influencing all who are around them. The idea here, folks, theologically, is that mankind is never neutral in their influence upon society. And their influence is regularly and sometimes holistically given by way of what they say. First, and then what they do. They're always influencing mankind away from God's original purpose for them. With their tongues, the text says, they keep deceiving. The idea here is that mankind can never be innately honest in their communication, perfectly honest, without Christ's governorship of their tongues. Yes, this is not just a problem with politicians. This is every man's problem outside of Jesus Christ. The poison of asps is under their lips. I don't know that all of us would be too fearful of being around a poisonous serpent if we knew that its jaws had been wrapped or sewn shut. Right? We might not like snakes themselves, but At least we know we're not going to die in their presence. But the wording here, what happens when that snake's threatened by you and coils and prepares and those mouth comes open? The communication of man is described as being venomous. An asp is a deadly snake. It's deathly. It says here, their mouth is full of cursing and bitternesses. Paul concludes with the analogy here of what man is regardless. Whether he is an extrovert or an introvert, whether he talks a lot or not at all, even their thoughts, which are just merely unspoken words, are full of cursing and bitterness. So even the hermit on your street that you never see and who never talks to anybody still has thoughts. And this is what the Bible says is going through his or her mind from time to time, even their thoughts. Indict man's actions, verses 15 to to 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Even nice moms at a baseball game whose kids get in a quarrel and the guilty child runs to the mom and to get out of trouble says that their friend is the guilty one and lies. And the mom immediately takes her side because that's what all objective moms do, right? So instead of finding out the facts. And so the moms quickly get in an argument. I saw this just last week on vacation. Didn't even know these people. At the beginning of the game, these two moms are chummy, sharing a Diet Coke together and a hot dog, just laughing, the kids are over here playing, squabble, daughter comes up, nah, nah. and within, within, it's like spontaneous combustion. These nice baseball moms, soccer moms, minivan driving moms, all of a sudden are, Yargh! my daughter would never do that, my daughter wouldn't lie, it's your daughter who lied. No, 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 oh, you gotta be kidding me. Even these really nice, sweet people, yeah. (sighs) Just always remember, folks, no doubt your child was probably at fault. (laughs) Don't stroke your idol too often. Always assume their guilt and then go find the facts. (laughs) That was great parenting skills right there. I didn't make any friends in the psychology world or the self-esteem world. Anyways, verse 16, destruction and misery is in their path. The course of human history tells us this, doesn't it? And the path of peace, verse 17, they have not known. And folks, remember, this is not the peace that we understand as the domestic tranquility of a suburban neighborhood of people living the American dream. This is salvific peace. They do not know the God of peace, Jesus Christ himself. They just don't know. Okay. Someone's online Bible's working well. Way to go, Mrs. Dodd, I'm glad you're following along. Luke, would you slide over and tell her how to shut that off? We're being doubly blessed with technology this morning. At least it's spewing forth the word of God. Right? What does it say here? They don't know his peace. They don't know Christ who is peace. There is no fear of God, verse 18, before their eyes. This is the concluding count of 14 that encapsulates the previous 13 counts in this indictment. For it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon tells us. And that only comes through knowing him who is God's wisdom, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. James Montgomery Boyce concludes, therefore, that man is condemned in what he is, his nature He's condemned in what he says, his words, and he's condemned in what he does, his actions. The verdict, verse 19 and 20, and we'll close. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of of sin. I want to point out one thing to you, and I have many, but I'll point out one and we'll close. Look how many times the word law is used in this final verdict. And this verdict tells us because all are under the law, the final verdict is, the sentence is, we're all condemned. We're all going to face judgment, eternal judgment, without Jesus Christ. Right? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That would be the Mosaic law. And the law was given to both Old Testament people and the the law of Christ us to expose our sin, right? To show us that we need the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God because the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, that use of the word law there in verse 20, from what I understand, has no definite article in front of it. So he says, you know what, if, 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 if the law of Moses, if the law of God in the Old Testament is enough to indict you and, you and you kind of reject even that law, this basically is saying any law known to mankind on earth ever in man's history since man fell into the sin is incapable of saving you even if you keep it to the T. No definite article. You pick the law. It could be men or civic law. It could be Ohio state law. It could be federal law. It could be a law of the United Nations. Whatever the law is, it could be your own dietary laws. It could be the laws by which you govern your own personal thinking. It could be the standard of laws by which you find medical help, psychological help. Whatever law you live by, just remember, it's still not sufficient to save you if you keep it Any law is to show you that you can't keep it so you are in desperate need of a perfect law giver. And that's Jesus Christ, who is the top of the chalkboard. And we're to be found somewhere on the left side. Okay? Let's pray together.